0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Nearly 6 million people in the United States age 65 and older have Alzheimer's disease. Of these, about 80% are 75 years and older. It's a devastating disease, not only for the patient, but also for the family of the patient involved. It's also a very costly disease, not because of the evaluation or even the treatment. It commonly results in family members leaving their jobs in order to provide care for their loved one. And in many cases, the patient will require long-term care, which can deplete the patient's life savings. Unfortunately, available treatment for Alzheimer's has been somewhat disappointing. Cure or even stability of the cognitive loss isn't currently possible. So today's topic is Alzheimer's disease, and our guest is Dr. Ron Peterson, a neurologist who's a specialist in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. We're going to discuss the evaluation, the current available treatment, as well as what might be on the horizon in the management of this disease. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, Daryl, for having me.
0: We know that as we get older, there are cognitive changes which occur. I've, I've noticed some, you know, you know, forget where you parked your car, forget certain things at the grocery store, occasionally forget your wife's name, you know, things like that. <laughs> but um, when do these cross the line and when should we suspect more of an early dementia or maybe more mild cognitive impairment?
1: It's a good question, Daryl, and a very common one in clinical practice these days. As you were indicating, we all get a little more forgetful as we age. As you say, where's my car? Word-finding difficulties. Coming up with the names of acquaintances. Not so much your wife, hopefully, but acquaintances, people you used to work with. It's not uncommon to meet somebody in the grocery store and say, oh, hey, how you doing, chief? Good buddy, old friend, because you can't come up with his name. Two aisles later, you say, that's Bill. How could I have forgotten Bill? That's very common. And I think that's a part of aging. But when we start to forget information that we formerly remembered fairly readily, especially important information, maybe doctor's appointments, the kids are coming over this weekend. I've got to play golf with my buddies on Tuesday. Those kinds of things that are important to us when they start to become forgotten and particularly in a pattern gee, dad, you forgot that last week, too, you're forgetting it today, and you probably will forget it next week, then that becomes a little bit more concerning. Doesn't mean you have Alzheimer's disease, but means that maybe you should mention this to your personal physician to discuss it and see whether we should pursue it.
0: All right, fair enough. So this condition of mild cognitive impairment, it's kind of somewhere in between the normal changes of aging and dementia. Is it important for us to recognize when patients have mild cognitive impairment?
1: I think so. I think mild cognitive impairment, as you've characterized, is sort of that in-between state. It's more than the forgetfulness of aging, and yet it's not clearly at the dementia stage. Dementia, again, meaning the syndrome that we now are not thinking as well as we used to, usually not remembering as well, maybe having some other troubles with problem solving, and it's affecting our daily function. That's dementia. Dementia. Mild cognitive impairment is kind of in between. I'm not remembering as well as I used to, or maybe as well as I ought to, but basically everything else is preserved. I'm still driving, I'm paying my bills, doing the taxes. To the casual observer, I look pretty normal. Those around me, however, may say, gee, you seem a little more forgetful than you used to be. So it is an early stage of progressing cognitive impairment. Back when you and I started training, the person was either normal or they had dementia. Over the years, we've come to realize that it is a continuum and there are these sort of gradual transitional states. Since some of these factors that cause MCI or mild cognitive impairment might be treatable, might be reversible, I think it is important to identify it.
0: It seems like we're seeing more dementia. Is that just because we're talking about it more or is it actually becoming more common with time?
1: You know, I, I think it is because we've become more focused now. I think our tools are better, our criteria are better, such that we're not writing it off to OG, oh, grandma's senile or grandma's just a little dotty these days, or is having mini strokes or something of that nature. But now we're really focusing on maybe this cognitive impairment is not normal, is not a part of normal aging. And again, dementia being the broad scope of all different kinds of causes of cognitive impairment affecting daily function, I think our attention is tuned to it. Actually, some data from Europe and from the United States over the last several years suggests that some of the the incidence rates, prevalence rates may actually be declining. And part of the reason for that could be better attention to cerebrovascular, cardiovascular features. So insofar as stroke rates are declining a bit, that may also have an impact on the broader scope of dementia. Maybe not Alzheimer's disease, but the broader scope of dementia.
0: Yeah. And our population is aging and it's a disease of older individuals. So that may be- The biggest
1: risk factor is age. You're right. Sure. Yeah.
0: Well, dementia, it's, it's kind of like an umbrella term and Alzheimer's is certainly the most common type of dementia. Can you go over the other types of dementia that we may see in our outpatient practice? Sure. So again, if dementia
1: is a decline in cognitive function, affecting your daily function, then what is it due to? Well, uh, as you say, up and away in aging, the most common cause is Alzheimer's disease, which is a degenerative disease of the brain. But you could have subtle vascular features, maybe a big stroke, maybe little uh, infarcts, subcortical infarcts, maybe white matter disease that may in fact impact your cognition. There could be other treatable causes. One of the ones that I've become much more aware of in the last five to eight years is sleep disorders. Very common in aging. And sleep in and of itself can affect your daily cognition. So we pay much more attention now to possible sleep apnea or other disturbances of sleep. It could be due to medications, maybe the medications you're taking for your appropriate medical illnesses have cumulative side effects like anticholinergic effects, which in an elderly person who might be susceptible to cognitive impairment, that little touch of an anticholinergic drug may be enough to tip that person over. We have to be concerned about sleepers, you know, uh, hypnotics that we give our patients and a variety. One common class of drugs that we need to at least pay some attention to are the drugs that the urologist or we might give to our patients when they're having bladder control problems. Many of these are anticholinergic drugs. And while they're meant to work in the periphery, it's not uncommon that sometimes they seep into the central nervous system and really can cause a problem. Of course, medical illnesses, your diabetes out of control, your hypertension out of control, COPD, COPD, anxiety depression a whole host of things can impair our cognition later in life and some of these may be treatable
0: those are really important points and whereas we really can't cure patients with alzheimer's disease we certainly can look at their medications their sleep and so forth because those things are treatable and it may improve these patients cognitive function absolutely well, let's, let's change now into the evaluation of patients with a suspected cognitive disorder. How important are mental status exams in the early evaluation of these patients?
1: I think it's vital. I mean, I think we as physicians seeing people in the age range where these disorders become more prevalent should do some kind of a screening cognitive exam on people. While it sounds like ageism, Pick 65. If somebody's 65, do some type of a mental status evaluation like you would do with their hypertension, their blood glucose, et cetera, things of that nature. At least put it on the chart, even if they're normal, such that three years, five years from now, when they come back to you and say, gee, I'm having trouble with that naming stuff. Or I got lost last week, and that's bothersome to me. You could say, okay, let's do a mental status exam, and now we have this baseline exam from three to five years ago. Against which to compare performance. So, I think some type of a mental status exam should be part of a general evaluation. The Medicare annual wellness visit includes now a component of cognitive assessment that's very loosely defined, and it could be, How's your memory, Joe? And that might qualify. But I think most physicians should do some type of a quantitative measure of cognition in their patients.
0: And I know I've been fooled several times seeing a patient who I assumed was cognitively normal and administered a mental status exam. I was surprised how poorly they did. Right. So you can't often tell just by talking to a patient. No,
1: Sometimes social skills can be well preserved into these disorders and people can dance around and kind of fake it, so to speak. And as you say, Daryl, it's not until you actually ask them some of these more defining questions that you really get insight into their cognitive function.
0: Yeah, Well, one of the problems with mental status exams is they're relatively low sensitivity. So you you need a fair amount of cognitive dysfunction to pick something up. So when should we progress to a more formal psychometric test? Uh, Let's say we suspect cognitive dysfunction, their mental status exam is normal. When do we go to the next step? I think this is your
1: clinical judgment. So if you suspect this history really sounds significant, I mean, this person's describing some forgetfulness or cognitive difficulties to me that sound real. I don't think this is the worried well. I don't think this is somebody who's just overly introspective. But I think this person is describing a genuine cognitive impairment to me yet my mental status screening test, whichever one you use, looks pretty normal. I would tend to refer them on. Again, at the very least, you're going to establish a baseline for them. But I think your clinical intuition, partly from the history, maybe partly from your exam, should trigger further uh, referral if needed.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've had some patients where we've progressed to the formal psychometric testing and they actually came back relatively normal. Yet in time, the patient did develop ob- uh, obvious uh, dementia. So you need to pursue this and continue yeah. to pursue it.
1: I tend not to dismiss people when they tell me that they're having cognitive difficulties. Now, on the other hand, the prevalence of that particular subjective finding can be 70, 80, 90% in the general population. You know very well the Mayo Clinic study of aging, which we've been doing in in Rochester, Minnesota here for decades. We ask these subjective questions, and depending on how soft the question is, you can get 80, 90% of people over 70 responding, yes, my memory's not what it used to be. But nevertheless, when people do come in, especially if they spontaneously come in with a concern about their own cognition, I would note it. Again, if you do neuropsychological testing, it's normal. You can kind of reassure them, but keep in the back of your mind, Mm -hmm. they may be picking up on something that we're not detecting.
0: Good point. So let's say we have a patient. We suspect they have some cognitive impairment. What does a reasonable evaluation consist of for a primary care provider?
1: I think if you're convinced that there is some degree of cognitive impairment, a cognitive change for this person, I think you would use your medical background to say, are there any of the other medical comorbidities that might be contributing to this issue? Again, the medications and side effects that the person may be taking. We don't do too many at the specialty level because you've done your job of looking for the screening test, but you know, a thyroid B12 probably is sufficient. I am a neurologist, so I like to look at the organ of interest. So if I'm convinced that there is a cognitive change in this person, I'll probably get an MRI scan. Again, make sure that we're not dealing with a subtle infarct here or there that may have been sort of silent, but really is not silent at all. Look at the overall structure of the brain. Make sure they don't have hydrocephalus. Rarely would you find a brain tumor. Maybe you'll find some inflammation, but these days, in addition to all those rule out kinds of things, we look at the medial temporal lobe on MRI scans, and we look at the hippocampus because in degenerative diseases of the brain, Alzheimer's disease and others, the hippocampus will shrink prematurely and of proportion to the rest of the brain, since it's the site of the usual involvement of many degenerative diseases. So we can get some positive information looking at the hippocampus on MRI as well. Then if you've already done neuropsychological testing, you've got that. So it, with those measures, I would have the person back and sit down and say, look, I think you have a profile that looks like perhaps a degenerative disease, meaning I haven't found inflammation, cancer, infection. And I think that this looks like a syndrome, perhaps, of mild cognitive impairment. Your data look like it. Your MRI scan doesn't show any strokes, doesn't show any tumors, blood clots, etc. But your hippocampus is a bit smaller. Doesn't mean you have Alzheimer's disease, but a bit smaller than we might expect for your age. Then the next question is, how far do you want to go? Do you want to go the next step, meaning I would like to know if, in fact, I have the tendency for the biologic features of Alzheimer's disease. And here now we can do spinal taps, CSFs, that are pretty good at showing us the levels of amyloid and tau in the spinal fluid. And we can be with a certain ratio, we can be pretty specific that there are Alzheimer's tendencies. We also could do a PET scan. Unfortunately, they're expensive. They're not reimbursed, but you can do PET scans these days. There are FDA approved agents for the presence of amyloid and tau. So you can do these, but again, we do them in a research setting more than in a clinical setting. So I always take that that, that question if I think it is, is Alzheimer's disease on your mind, is it on my mind? Do we want to go there or not? And then we get into the issue of treatments.
0: Okay. I think it's pretty much commonly accepted now that we should do some head imaging of patients where we suspect cognitive impairment and not so much to rule in dementia, but to rule out the reversible things, tumors, aneurysm, normal pressure, hydrocephalus, things like that. And that's often a misconception. We're not doing it really to diagnose the dementia. Let's talk about the reversible dementias. Do they really exist? I've had patients with dementia and B12 deficiency, dementia and hypothyroidism. I treat the conditions. They still have dementia. I have not seen a truly reversible dementia in my 40 years of practice. Do they really exist?
1: I agree with your conceptualization of the situation. I think there are treatable components of cognitive impairment. So, doesn't mean that a person has one and only one cause of his or her cognitive impairment. There may be contributing features. I think the only caveat to what you said, Daryl, was again, going back to sleep disorders. I have had people clearly at the mild cognitive impairment stage, maybe mild dementia stage, who have a rip-roaring, obstructive sleep apnea. You treat them and their cognition improves dramatically back to normalish ranges. So that's the one area where I do pursue uh, history pretty aggressively to see if there might be a treatable component there. But I agree with you, otherwise, you, know, you can treat the thyroid problem, you can treat the B12. It's probably not the sole cause of their underlying problem, but it may make say the tendency for a neurodegenerative disease a bit worse. So I think we still try to attack these other medical comorbidities, psychiatric issues, like a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression, not uncommon in this situation those are treatable and can make the person perform a bit better and perhaps improve their quality of life.
0: All right. Is it important to identify the specific type of dementia, you know, Alzheimer's, cerebrovascular disease, NPH, Lewy body disease? Does it matter?
1: I think so. I think it is important to try to characterize what the cause of the underlying cognitive problem, the syndrome, MCI, or dementia might be. One is for planning, for prediction, maybe treatments in some areas, but also the manifestation and the way these might progress could be quite different depending on the underlying etiology. So it's important, again, to plan for these. You mentioned Lewy body dementia. These individuals, as you know, might have some Parkinsonism. Might have some delusions, some visual hallucinations, may have a cognitive profile that's different than typical Alzheimer's disease. And I think explaining that to the patient and to the family is important as to what to expect. So if this happens, yeah, that may be part of the disease. If that happens, it's probably not part of the disease. So I think those educational aspects are important, planning, financial matters, etc., there are treatments on the horizon. Now, certainly with Lewy body disorders, actually cholinergic treatments, so cholinesterase inhibitors like donepezil, rivastigmine, galantamine actually work pretty well in Lewy body disorders, maybe better than they do in Alzheimer's disease because there's a greater cholinergic deficit in Lewy body disorders. But also Lewy body disorders may present with hallucinations, delusions and Parkinsonism. So we may need to use L-DOPA like medicines. We may need to use some antipsychotic type medications to deal with some of those symptoms. So it really is important to tease out what is the underlying cause of the disorder.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about the treatment. I think everybody would agree, you know, it's less than we would hope for, but what's available currently?
1: Well, if we're talking about treatments for Alzheimer's disease, now we think that this most likely is Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. looks like it by history, by exam, or- we actually have some biomarkers. And I might say a word about biomarkers in just a moment, Daryl, as to what's on the horizon with blood biomarkers. But let's say we're convinced this is, in fact, Alzheimer's disease. So we have four FDA-approved drugs out there, three in one class. I mentioned donepezil, rivastigmine, and galantamine. They're all cholinesterase inhibitors, increasing the amount of acetylcholine in the brain that's active at any given time. You use one of those, not more than one of those. They're all in the same class. Or you use memantine, which is an NMDA antagonist. Again, may help behavior a little bit, but these are all symptomatic drugs trying to stabilize the symptoms, maybe improve things a little bit. Happens in Lewy body disorders, less so in Alzheimer's disease. But on the horizon, as many people know, in a very controversial fashion, the FDA gave accelerated approval to the drug aducanumab. This year, aducanumab is a disease-modifying therapy, not just symptomatic, meaning that it is actually meant to remove one of the offending proteins from the brain, amyloid, that's thought to be causative in the Alzheimer's pathway. Now, it reduces the amount of plaque in the brain, as has been demonstrated by PET scanning pre- and post-treatment. But the reason it got accelerated approval, meaning not full approval, was based on the fact that it did what it's supposed to do biologically, reduce the amyloid plaque level, but the FDA was not convinced that that had a meaningful clinical impact. Did it stabilize the disease process? The data there were quite equivocal. Nevertheless, the FDA said, look at it. If it removes one of the offending proteins in the disease, that makes it reasonably likely that it's going to have a clinical impact. But we don't know that right now. So, aducanumab is out there, is available, very expensive, a lot of controversy about its uh, approval pathway. But I think it's opened the door for other monoclonal antibodies that do the same thing, and may be as effective as aducanumab, maybe better with regard to removing amyloid plaque from the brain. So we'll have to see how these therapies play out over the next few years.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think a fair amount is known about the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's and other dementias. So, where is the research headed in Alzheimer's and other dementias? Where are you looking?
1: I think we can approach the research and the disease from a couple of perspectives. One is the diagnostic side, and the other is the treatment side. I just talked a bit about the treatment side. I think that's where a lot of the effort is going right now on the therapy, developing these either amyloid removal compounds or tau removal or preventing the aggregation of tau in the brain. Again, amyloid and tau plaques and tangles, the two defining features of the disease. So a lot of attention to our therapies going there, but other targets are being looked at as well. Inflammation, reactive oxygen species, a whole host of other factors that may contribute to this complex disease. So that's on the treatment side. On the diagnostic side, I think we are getting pretty good increasing our specificity that in fact, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease and not just dementia in general. And I mentioned the biomarkers a little earlier. Biomarkers are very important and are becoming very specific for the disease. So I mentioned CSF. So if you do a spinal tap and you look in the CSF for amyloid A-beta 42 levels or phospho tau levels, usually a ratio of phospho tau to A-beta 42 can be quite specific that we're dealing with Alzheimer's disease. On the imaging side of the house, We can do molecular imaging to detect amyloid in the brain with a PET scan or tau in the brain with a PET scan. So we can be pretty good on that level. The new kid on the block and what's on the horizon receiving a lot of attention the last couple of years are blood tests. So now blood tests for A-beta, A beta 42 to 40 ratio in the blood seem to be quite promising and also blood tests for phospho tau, P tau, either P tau 181, 217, 231, different isoforms of P tau may in fact be reasonably good at predicting who's going to develop amyloid and tau in the future, maybe diagnostically more work needs to be done there, but it's possible that a blood test might be close to being diagnostic. And then importantly, the utility of blood tests and following therapies. So if in fact, these monoclonal antibodies at removing amyloid from the brain are effective, can we follow that in the blood rather than doing serial spinal taps or doing serial PET scans? So all of this work is underway right now, and it actually looks quite promising.
0: Aducanumab kind of took us all by surprise, at least those of us who aren't heavily involved in the research of dementia. Aducanumab is kind of the first of its class. Are there others coming? And uh, I assume there's going to be more work done on refining it in terms of how it works.
1: Exactly. Yes. There are three other uh, monoclonal antibodies right now, donanemab, lacanumab, and gantenerumab, that are all meant to lower the amyloid levels in the brain. And thus far, the preliminary data from these studies indicate that they do what they're supposed to do. Again, the million-dollar question is, does that have a meaningful clinical impact on the patients? The challenge, though, in the field is, of course, if you stop that process. Now, the amyloid deposition process has probably been going on for 10, 15 years or more before somebody becomes symptomatic. So if you take that gradual evolution of that process and now you reverse a portion of it with a monoclonal antibody over the course of 12 months or 18 months, is it realistic that we're going to see a dramatic clinical impact of that? Not sure it is. But on the other hand, if we see a slowing of the progression rates, the curves start to flatten out in those who are treated with monoclonal antibodies, we might in fact be making an impact on the disease. And then the implication would be, let's not wait for people to become symptomatic and treat them. Let's go back and lower their brain cholesterol, if you will, their brain amyloid, like we do with cardiovascular disease, lower the cholesterol level before the person becomes symptomatic with heart disease. What if we lower the amyloid levels while people are asymptomatic, clinically normal, can we prevent the onset of the symptoms or at least delay them and push them back? I think that's a more realistic goal and the ultimate application of these drugs to the disease process.
0: And getting back to where we started at the beginning, it is important to diagnose these patients very early, as early as possible.
1: I think so. So all of the discussion we had earlier about the screening tests, the mental status evaluation, in the office may become increasingly important mm-hmm. if, in fact, these therapies become effective and available to a broader audience.
0: Well, Ron, can you summarize maybe in two or three key points the discussion we've had on uh, Alzheimer's disease?
1: Sure. I think from a disease progression perspective, it's a continuum, and we no longer have just normal people and people with dementia, but we have this in-between stage of mild cognitive impairment, and it's important to identify people on that continuum. I think a mental status exam in the office should be part of our normal armamentarium. I think we need to know where our patients are clinically. I think we need to listen to them. If they give us a concern about their cognitive impairment, again, maybe worried well, but I think an objective assessment may be worthwhile. If we're concerned, if our clinical judgment says, hey, this person's changing, something's going on, taking it to the next step, maybe neuropsychological testing, brain imaging, looking at their total medical picture and their medications. If they wanna go down the etiology route, there are some biomarkers now for Alzheimer's disease. We can use the symptomatic therapies for Alzheimer's disease, and hopefully on the horizon, some of these disease-modifying therapies
0: will pan out. Well, we've been discussing Alzheimer's disease with Dr. Ron Peterson, a neurologist and specialist in dementia from the Mayo Clinic. Ron, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. It's great to see you again.
1: My pleasure, Daryl. Thanks for having me.